This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Space is a critical domain for us. It can be used for observation of the planet, both for scientific reasons and for intelligence reasons. The weaponization of space is, is a very serious threat. I think it's primarily from China, but it's also the Russians in that, in that area. China and Russia have continued right, to build and to invest in their capabilities in this area as well as other areas. And in many ways, the U.S. has some catch-up to do. The position that Inkutel sits in, in this unique spot after being here for 20 years, is actually seeing different technologies and the global competition that is going on and looking at what are the market factors that are forcing it and are adjusting it, what will that mean? How do you think about this competition between China and the United States for these critical technologies? I see a China that is very willing to concede innovation and thought leadership to the United States, put together a multi-year strategy to take our thought leadership and operationalize it in their context. Glenn Gaffney is the executive vice president of Incutel a CIA-sponsored venture capital firm that invests in startup technologies important to national security. Prior to Incutel, Glenn served as a CIA officer for more than 30 years, solving some of our nation's most pressing intelligence challenges. Most important, he served for six years as the Director of Science and Technology at CIA and for two years as the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Collection, one of the highest positions in the intelligence community. I recently sat down with Glenn to talk about his career, and the importance of technology in defending our nation. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity, to high-energy lasers, to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Glenn, it is great to have you on the show. And most importantly, it is great to see you again. Being with you brings back many fond memories for me. As it does for me. It's great to be here. Thanks, Michael. When I retired from the agency, the gift that 
you representing the science and technology side of the agency gave me was a beautiful lacquered box with a secret compartment. And I remain to this day the only person in the Morell family who knows how to get into that secret compartment. That's the, that's the whole story. So I got, some special, <laughs> I got some special stuff in that compartment. What I should say is, is that I'm really excited about having you on the show because we've had folks from the operational side of the agency. We've had folks from the analytic side of the agency. But we've never had somebody from the science technology side of the agency, the S&T, as we call it, And so I think our listeners are in for a real treat here because it's a part of the agency that doesn't get discussed enough, in my view. I'd love to use, Glenn, your career as kind of a roadmap to discuss some important issues. So let me start by asking about your academic background and how you ended up at the CIA. Sure. I was a... uh, uh physics student. Actually, the technically, my degree is in engineering science. I went to the New Jersey Institute of Technology. It was an engineering school, primarily. And to study physics, uh, you had to kind of go into your create-your-own-degree program. There was a lot of, there's about 26 of us in that program, folks mostly focusing on nuke engineering. But I was interested in physics and wanted to study broadly a lot of different topical areas. And so my degree was actually put together by a handful of classes in the electrical engineering department, a handful of mechanical engineering, aerospace, a lot of physics courses, as you might expect, not realizing that little bits of engineering and a lot of science all the way across was really going to prepare me for a career that at that point I didn't really uh, plan on. Yeah. Came time to graduate, and I had just finished a project. My senior project that you had to do for graduation was in astrophysics. I was looking at the relationship between plasma and magnetic fields relative to stars and, in our case, the sun. And I'm graduating. I'm trying to decide, am I going to go to graduate school? Do I want to go, you know, work? Do I want to serve? What, you know, what do I want to do? And uh, I'd gone to a couple of interviews from some different companies, talked to them. They told me what a career path would look like over 25 years. It didn't sound like something I wanted to do. Um, I wanted something that was going to change and be challenging and give me lots of opportunities to do a number of different things. And so I wasn't really sure about what I want to do or where I wanted to go with it. I had applied to NASA, the idea of being an astronaut. They sent me a letter. I did not know that. Yeah, they sent me a letter back saying, um, get five years relevant work experience and uh, then reapply. All right. So I thought, well, where can I get five years relevant work experience? And almost on a whim, all right, I'm kind of competing with I want to serve. I want to do these things. I want to get five years relevant work experience. A recruiter from CIA was coming by. Uh, an alumni from New Jersey Institute of Technology who had worked in the S&T field. He came by and we started talking and he started telling me about the challenges that were facing the community. We were in the height of the Cold War at the time. A lot of gaps in our knowledge, a lot of need for scientists and engineers. I asked him the question, I said, what if there's a, a big gap in the information that we have, we just can't solve the problem? And his answer was, there are so many challenges, Glenn, just come and we'll figure it out. And that sounded like it was worth trying. Uh, and so I came thinking I was going to be there for five years and then go off to NASA. Fell completely in love with the mission two years into it and stayed for almost 31 full years. So a key moment in anyone's career, as you know, is the start. And you began your career as an analyst, just like I did. You worked on issues related to the space systems of the Soviet Union outer space, right? Yes. And we can't, there's not a lot we can talk about about the work you did there, but it 
does give me an opportunity to use that to ask you about the importance of space today, mm-hmm. right? Space as a battlefield, the threats we face in space from Russia and China. How do you think about all of that? How do you sort all of that? Yeah, I think space is a critical domain for us. It, it, as a scientist, it's a critical domain just because of what it means for exploration and understanding. And so we think of space both in terms of peaceful exploration and what that means in just terms of our discovery of what's out there and how we might interact and act in that, uh, in that area, in that domain. But it's also from the beginning of putting uh, men in space who are then observing things on the planet. It's an important domain that can be used for observation of the planet, both for scientific reasons and for intelligence reasons. It was one of the key things. And for military operations. And for military operations. It, was, it was, became one of the key elements of the way that we could see over the Iron Curtain, right, and listen, right, over the Iron Curtain. And as such, it's a very important, right, uh, aspect of our ability and an understanding what is capable in that domain, an important part of our own defense, defending our own secrets, defending our own military or military operations, those types of things. The weaponization of space, the threats to those capabilities is very is, is a very serious threat. And, and primarily from China <clears throat> or China plus? I think it's primarily from China, but it's, pri- it's China plus. I think you can't rule out the Russians in that, in that area. Uh, we never could. And I don't believe you can right and when today. We're, when we're talking about this, we're talking about their ability to attack what we have in space and therefore undercut that capability that we have to watch the planet and communicate, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And it's not just things that are on orbit, but it's also the elements of the infrastructure of the space uh, network of our, of our overall capabilities in that domain, which means the ground infrastructure, right, communications infrastructure, the things that support all of that, the observation systems, all of those things need to be paid attention to, right, protected, right, and thought of, right, as a system, not just individual, right, elements or components. So are there certain things that we need to do as a nation in order to, to defend ourselves in space? I think one of the big challenges that we have today is a number of our capabilities in the space arena have atrophied over the years. When the wall came down, there was a peace dividend, right, and there was a drawback, a natural drawback. Choices had to be made, and a number of those choices came at reducing our level of spending on the space program. And that wasn't just the visible parts of the space program. It was also the intelligence parts of the space program. Many of us cautioned at the time that over, you know, that while we slowed down and we pulled back, adversaries wouldn't. And it would take some on the order of 20 years to gain back some of the things that we were going to give up. And I think we're seeing the realities of that today where... China and Russia have continued, right, to build and to invest in their capabilities in this area as well as other areas. And in many ways, the U.S. has some catch-up to do. So do you support President Trump's space command? Is that a step here that makes sense in order to focus the investment that's necessary? I, I don't know enough about the command or the, the way they're thinking about the command to comment effectively on it. I think what I do see it as is a... Uh, recognition of the need for specific and deliberate focus to pay attention and build capability in that area. So later in your career, you become one of the founders and then later the director of the CIA cyber operations component, operations unit. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions about cyber. The first being, how do you think about the cyber threats that we face as a nation? 
the cyber threat is one that, of course, we've been paying attention to and, and concerned about for, for many years. I think one of the things that concerns me the most about it is the complexity of the networks that uh, we've developed over the years. That complexity presents an incredible challenge on the defensive side. But I'm also concerned because we seem to, through the way that we are developing technology and employing that technology, creating more and more attack surface. If we think about things like the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, smart my, my TV, your my TV, your refrigerator, refrigerator my right? toaster. Uh, you're, exactly. And then we think about all the things that will go into what the cities of the future right, are going to look like, are going to need to look like in order to provide some of the key things in terms of services for autonomous people. Autonomous vehicles, right? And, and then you go into the... autonomous vehicles, right? And when you start thinking about all of the different ways that a would-be attacker might exploit those systems, we are creating more and more attack surface, all right, in this space. One of my friends calls the Internet of Things the Internet of Threats yeah. because he just sees the way that that's expanding. And so... Like everything else, cyber defense is not a static thing. It is not a understand how it works, seal it off, right? It has to be more of a living, breathing, right, evolving understanding of the nature of attack services, the way we're being attacked, and how we respond, right, within is, that space. If you're talking if you're talking to CEOs or, you know, senior corporate folks, is there one or two things that you – say to them that they really need to think about as they think about defending their network? Yeah, I often listen and we talk about understanding the behavior within a network. And it's not just, uh, it is both the behavior of people and uh, the behavior of the things themselves. We need to actually be able to understand what is normal behavior and abnormal behavior for people and things, right, within a particular network. Understanding that a network's going, like there are going to be elements that uh, like in biology, make it sick, right? A particular element gets affected. How do we isolate that, address that, take care of that, and not lose the network, not lose the functionality, right, of the system as a whole? Yeah. It's a very different construct than the way people have traditionally thought about cyber in many years past, which tended to be more static, more about yeah. for, you know building a fortress, building a higher wall, building, right, a more defensible network from the outside, we actually, it's far more dynamic and it needs to be dynamic inside, yeah. not just outside. So the United States of America, our government, uses cyber to collect intelligence. We have a cyber command that is preparing to fight a war in cyberspace if necessary. At the same time, we're critical of what other countries do on the cyber front. So how should people think about what's fair game in the cyber world and what's not fair game? Yeah, I think it's a good, it, it's a great question. And one that I think as an intelligence professional, there's a certain level of respect that you develop as you're looking at other intelligence services and what their capabilities are and the way that they employ those capabilities. If they are, if it is in the, it is in the realm of intelligence in collecting information to, you know, trying to develop information that helps good policy be formed or whatever their national policy is be formed, that's part of the business. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the way that they would approach that business. That's very different, though, than when you're talking about things like uh, stealing intellectual property, 
We uh, don't do that. I mean, be very, very we, clear. We the United States of America no. does not do that. It never has done that. That's right. Does not do that. It is not. Uh, we don't engage in economic espionage, right, from that perspective. Also, attacks on infrastructure that uh, could be incredibly debilitating for a nation, affecting great innocence in the, you know, in the North Korea's attack on Sony. Right. All, all. Iran's attack on Saudi Aramco. All great examples of the kind of thing that I think are alarming, right, and need to be dealt with right at a national and international level. So not unlike other domains, right? We need some norms here, eventually, right. right, about That's what's right. acceptable and what's not, and we're just not there yet. That's right. It is a domain, and we and we need to actually have those kinds of governing behaviors. So the next step in your career, at least in my chronology here, I'm probably skipping a lot of stuff, is you also served in a senior role at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. You oversaw all of the intelligence community's collection programs. And again, there's not a lot, you know, we can talk about specifically there, and I understand that, but I, have, but I do have two questions. One is, is having served there and then having served as long as you had at the agency, how would you assess the DNI 13 years after its creation? You know, I think like any organization, it had to find its feet, um, had to find it, its role, its extended role across what is, a, what is a large, a very large intelligence community, 16 different agencies, all with very important roles to play you know, in this intelligence arena, all with different, different governing rules relative to what they can do and the way that they do it, which are all meant to protect the freedoms and the, and the things that we value most as Americans. And balancing all of those and integrating all of those is an incredible challenge. And one of the things that I think has been one of the, uh, the strongest points or the best things about the creation of the DNI and the way that it has evolved over the 13 years is the ability to bring the community together to work on specifically challenging problems that left unattended or left to their own devices. They would all knock off a piece of it relative to their own agency's interest or ability but quite frankly, the nation needs more than that. It needs an integrated approach to solving some of these problems. And so that join on me focus from the DNI saying, we, the U.S. intelligence community, need to take on this particular problem. Now you all get together and give me a strategy for what that would look like. And then together we're going to figure out how we're going to fund it and staff it and make it work. Yeah. That to me, I think, is uh, is one of the probably the strongest case for a DNI or a DNI-like role there's for the an analytic, There's an analytic component to that too that I saw. So prior to the DNI, the president really only got a way of thinking about the world from one organization. Yeah. And now he gets it from all of them. Exactly. Right? And I exactly. think that's incredibly important. Yeah, and, and multiple voices on yes. it with different nuances yep. to those voices. Yep. And I, um, I was an opponent of the DNI when it was created. And when I retired, I made a special visit to Capitol Hill to thank both Susan Collins and Senator Lieberman for passing the legislation that created the DNI because I saw the value over time. Yeah, I, I too had a funny experience yeah. with it where I was downtown arguing against the stand-up of it, uh, only, to find, only to have two years later be sitting almost in the exact same chair in front of Congress as a member of the DNI talking about what we needed to do How do you think Jim Clapper did his DNI? I think he did an incredible job. I think there were some things that we were doing. Uh, when I was at the DNI, I was the deputy director of national intelligence for collection. While I was there, we had one deputy director for collection, another one for analysis. And one of the things that we focused on was this, what we called integrated collection strategies, kind of what, we were, what I was just talking about in terms of the way that we thought about going after a particular target. 
and bringing an integrated program together and doing that. And we did those on a couple of occasions in a couple of key areas, and we had some real success with it. Jim came in and said to me, I think we're going to do away with the collection uh, piece and do away with an analytic piece. We're going to create these issue managers. And I thought, you know, Jim, I'm not sure that I like that. And Jim said, well, look, he says, well, take the success that you've had in this area and and we're going to regularize it. We're going to multiply it out across these areas. Across all the issues, yeah. um, Across all of these issues. And I thought, well, I, I get it. Right. It's worth a shot. And to his great credit, I think Jim and uh, Stephanie O'Sullivan is his deputy. The two of them together did an absolutely phenomenal job yeah. uh, as the DNI. He's and the, the role model. DNI. He's the role model for me. Yeah. And, yeah. and he and he really built that organization around that join on me. Let's solve these tough problems together. We'll be right back with more of our discussion with Glenn Gaffney after a word from our sponsor. Do you hear that? That's a quadcopter built by STEM students competing in an annual technology challenge. Just one of the Raytheon-sponsored initiatives designed to help young people pursue sustainable STEM careers. Every day, Raytheon empowers students, supports teachers, and harnesses the strength of key partnerships. Together, we're inspiring the next generation of innovators. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. So the defining, for me anyway, the defining assignment of your career was the six years that you spent as the leader of the science and technology Best directorate. Best job in the U.S. government. One of the five directorates <laughs> or departments at the agency, so it's a very significant thing. So let me start with some basics here. What does, what does the S&T do? What does the science and technology directorate at CIA do? Well, contrary to a lot of popular belief made popular in the movies, we're not running around in a bunch of lab coats blowing stuff up in the basement. I've seen some of your labs, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we, we, we have blown stuff up, <laughs> um, just not in the basement, uh, nor are we running around in lab coats. I think one of the key things to think about when you think about intelligence and you think about all the different directorates, all the different components that make up intelligence is that at its heart, the one thing that we all have in common, whether you're an analyst, an operator, a, a science and technology specialist, a director of support officer – is that the one thing that cuts across all the other subcultures is that we're cultural problem solvers. And what the Directorate of Science and Technology is called on to do is to try to stay abreast, to stay current, right, in current science and what the art of the possible is going forward in science and technology with the idea of being of how do you take that knowledge and combine what you've learned, combine the different pieces to come up with new solutions to solve tough problems. So we talked about the space program earlier, right? The value of the space program, we were solving a problem we couldn't see over the Iron Curtain, right? And and space offered an incredible domain, and we built incredible capabilities to see over that curtain, right? And you can give an example of that, right? The SR-71? Yep. You can go to the U-2 spy plane, right? The SR-71, right? It was about... It was about seeing over the Iron Curtain, using using the technology to get there, doing it right in a unique right way. The SR seventy one, what's known as the the ox cart to the DS and T, was a CIA DS and T program designed to solve a particular challenge. Yeah. Right. So so the S and T creates its own platforms to collect intelligence. That's right. Right. And then it also provides support to 
the human side of the agency. That's exactly doing right. Its job, right? And that's one. That's exactly right. So that's one of the unique things that the 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 S uh, about the S and T. CIA is a all source, all domain intelligence enterprise. It has unique right authority that if the president and National Security Council need an operation, need a way to go get a secret, go after the truth, and we can come up with a way to do it, we have the authority to go do it. Because of that unique role, we don't do it ourselves, necessarily all by ourselves. We partner with other agencies. We've had longstanding deep partnerships with NSA in particular, where NSA and CIA has worked very well together to gain new access to new capabilities and what have you. So, yes, we develop capability to answer really tough problems. But the other half of the business is what you would expect in what I'll call the classic espionage, right, human role, the capabilities that support the human operations that are going on out there every day. Everything from disguise to communications to any one of a number of different things that you just you know, right, are are the the bread and butter of day to day uh, spying. To include things like bugs, right? Um, it's not a secret for anybody that bugs are out there. People bug things to be able to listen, to be able to see eyes and ears that are unattended that allow you to be able to collect. The S&T's background is in developing those things and developing the technologies that support those things. Yeah, so everything from bugs on the collection side to disguises on the, the human support operation side. I did want to take this opportunity, and we can't talk about this, but I do want to take the opportunity to say that the S&T had a very, very significant role in the intelligence collection portion of finding Osama bin Laden. We did. That does not get talked about, and we can't talk about what you did, but I did want to give the S&T publicly the credit that it deserves because I do not believe the president would have had the confidence to go do what he did without the support that the S&T provided. Well, thank you. I was, in, I was incredibly proud to have been the director of science and technology for six years, and I can't tell you how incredible it is to have been the director of science and technology during that run-up and, and the operation as well. But, you know, the, you know, it was interesting to me, where's your point about problem-solving, right? It was actually in a meeting in my office where the head of the counterterrorism center was explaining a problem that he had, and you said, I think I have the solution. That's right. Right? And it's exactly what you talked and, about. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be bringing to the table, is listening to what are the challenges that are, that are the ones that we just can't seem to solve. And the, science and the director of science and technology goes off and thinks about, is there a way that we can get at this? Yeah. Tremendous amount of uh, men and women in the s and all over the world working all different aspects of the different problems that are out there. It was no different in the, in the discovery of the bin Laden compound. So that's another interesting point, right? I think people think science and technology, scientists and engineers back in Washington, you know, not on the front lines, but many of your officers are on the front lines, yes. right, in very dangerous situations. The movie Argo actually mm-hmm. was a great example of that, yes. right? Um, he was an S&T officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a really important point to remember that the S&T officers, like the operations officers, are on the front lines. That's right. Not only do we develop it, they're the ones that are out there installing it and making it work every day. Because they're the ones who understand it. That's right. So because we're time limited, Glenn, I'm going to skip over another important point in your career. 
You're the founder and the first director of the CIA Talent Center, which is to worry about and work all of the issues related to human capital the agency. That's a whole nother discussion. It's a really important thing that you did. But I want to pivot now to InQtel, which mm-hmm. is which is where you work today, That's right. and where you hang your hat today. The 20th anniversary is next year. That's right. I hope you guys are planning a big party. But I think the place to start here in talking about InQtel is the importance of technology going forward to the intelligence community. How do you think about that? How do you talk about that? Yeah, so I think one of the brilliant things that happened 20 years ago in standing up InQtel was recognizing that the government wasn't going to drive the pace of technology, that industry was going to drive the pace of technology. And it was very focused back then in the 90s on the IT industry in particular. And we were looking at a transition from government driving it to U.S. industry driving it. Fast forward 20 years, and what we see now from InQtel as a strategic investor— Maybe right. we should maybe we should quickly define what InQtel does. Sure. So so so, so, so InQtel exists as a strategic investor. It is a not for profit. It sits at a unique bridge. The a unique, seed money comes from the right. It sits US at a government. unique bridge between the U.S. government, venture capital, right, and the startup world. Originally, right, the model was money would come in from the government that that money then would be as a strategic investor using the money from the government to make investments where we saw two things. One, the value of the technology commercially had to be valuable commercially. And two, the value of the technology to the intelligence business. Right. That's the charter. That's the original charter for uh, InQtel and the way that we were moving forward. Over the years, that model has gone from prolific investor to to strategic investor, right, looking at now a global market, a global technological space where innovation is coming from all sectors across the world and looking at both the what I'll call not just the specific investments that are still the bread and butter of the business. By the way, those investments, those investment dollars that come in or should say the dollars that come in from the government are combined with other uh, venture capital partners in making these. So the government gets anywhere from 12 to 1 to 15 to 1 return on their right investment dollar, huge from that perspective. But what I want to focus on from an InQtel perspective is what I saw as a senior, and I think many seniors do see, which is the strategic landscape, the situational awareness, the position that InQtel sits in in this unique spot after being here for 20 years is actually seeing different technologies and the global competition that is going on, right, across the globe and looking at what are the market factors that are forcing it and are adjusting it. What will that mean for the future of the intelligence business? What will that mean relative to the way we think about policy, right, that affects technology and technology development, all from a situational awareness landscape so perspective. So how do you think about, how do you, Glenn, think about this competition between China and the United States for these critical technologies? Yeah, so... And how does InQtel play into that? So, again, from that situational awareness perspective, understanding what's happening in the global, right, landscape, looking at the way people are positioning themselves, using their equity to invest in different technologies, and then what they are doing with those technologies and how they're applying them. One of the things that really concerns me is looking at areas like uh, bio and the future of biotech, looking at areas like machine learning and deep learning, the precursors to artificial intelligence. I think 
I see a China that is very willing to concede innovation and thought leadership to the United States. What they seem to have done is put together a multi-year strategy to take our thought leadership and operationalize it in their context. They're amassing of tremendous amounts of data, using their own citizens to do it, to actually build their models in machine learning and deep learning. Their plan to own the bio revolution the way the U.S. owned the Silicon Revolution, the IT revolution, right, 20 years ago. They are deliberately moving and strategically moving to operationalize that thought leadership in that space. So from a national securities perspective, what are the really important technologies here that are that the Chinese are going after? Certainly, I think on the machine learning, deep learning front, it's absolutely critical. There are some, I think, deep questions that need to be addressed in that area that the U.S. needs to, needs to grapple with. Things like explainability of models and the effect of, of collection bias and data bias in those models. If we're going to rely on those things, um, we're going to have to understand much deeper how they work and what's really happening. And we're going to need to explain it to the American public, which is not normal, right, particularly on the intelligence national security right, scene. But it's necessary, right, in order to have the kind of security in context with our values going forward. Huge race. Would you put quantum computing in there? I would put quantum computing in there. I think the machine learning, deep learning is a near-term piece, but you cannot ignore quantum right, in this space. And I think the biotech piece is absolutely critical. The, what, what is happening in, the, in synthetic biology right, and the ability to develop organisms and modify organisms and where that whole future is going is a really important space, and it's really important, for, in my opinion, for us to see it develop in a way that's consistent with the kind of values that we hold near and dear. And Incutel is, is a piece of making sure that we stay competitive here. So Incutel is you know, a piece of staying competitive, gaining early access, not just to the technology via the investments, but to the insights based on that strategic awareness, situational awareness that we hold by watching these markets. The, just the sheer volume of companies and exposure to the national and international markets that Incutel has is a huge benefit. And this uh, has been this has been a huge success. I mean, this is George Tennant started this thing. This has been a huge success over the last twenty years. Correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for me it's always come down to a couple of key things. One, the strategic vision that, that Incutel has developed over the years. It didn't it wasn't born with it. It developed it. And the relationship between Incutel seniors and government seniors always bears that out. But on the technology front, it comes in kind of two flavors. The way I like to describe it is one is what I'll call the shrink-wrapped piece, the, the product that's being developed by commercial industry. We see value in that product as applied to the intelligence business. It might be in the cybersecurity domain, the advanced analytics area, where we're going to take the product and bring it inside defense line and apply it and use it. But the other is in the componentry. There may be different things that we, the U.S. government, may not be interested in the particular product, but the components that make up the product are critically important. And so we, we may have Incutel make three or four different investments, all with commercial value. But what we're going to do is we're going to take the components from those and recombine them in a whole other way to get a whole other capability back to the reason for the S&T. Yeah. That's cool. Goes back to your um, your training in college, where you were putting all sorts of different things together. Exactly, Glenn. Your time 
is important, and our time is running short here, so I just want to ask you one more question. You didn't leave the agency to be an astronaut. You stayed. Yes. You stayed for an entire career. And so two questions, why, right? And then the second question is, what is the one thing that you would want people to know about the agency? The one thing I would like people to know about the agency is if you have it in your heart to serve this nation, there's no better place to serve this nation than in the Central Intelligence Agency. The sheer range of issues, challenges, the ability to work with some of the best and the brightest people in all different fields, both in the agency and across the government and across industry, says you can bring the very best minds and people together to work on problems that really matter to protect our nation, to protect the values that we hold dear. And everyone there is motivated by the same thing. The job is to discover the truth and to be relentless in discovering the truth. And you bring the best of your ability and you work with others who are trying to do the exact same thing, right, to do that very job. That's the one thing, right? Why did I stay? I got to work during my career in analysis, in operations, technical operations, and then in the director of science and technology as a whole, eventually to be the associate director for talent, looking at the talent needs across the whole agency. And I joined to get five years relevant work experience. I stayed, right, because the challenge was real. The ability to discover, right, things that mattered, that were important in terms of the in terms of the way that we could solve problems and bring people together to work on those problems and produce, right, intelligence that mattered, right, for the safety and security of our nation. It was new almost every day. And there is no plan to my career in terms of I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. I just simply went in to work with great people every day to work on something that mattered. And every day was a new challenge. And I used to tell folks, came for five, stayed for 31. I'd do it all over again tomorrow. And the next 31 would be completely different from the last 31. And that's what's so exciting. Glenn, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. That was Glenn Gaffney. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.